Thank you so much for joining Hill City Church Online. For more information about how we do life together, you can find us at hillcitychurch.ca. We would love to help you discover your next steps in this journey of living and loving like Jesus. Now stay tuned for another encouraging and inspiring message from Hill City Church. We, so yes, we are happy uh, to be uh, part of the leadership here at this church. And, and we have also this, this great passion to see the church uh, restored to see the people, because the church is people, right? And so our desire is to see people healed and whole. And I feel like we're always learning and we're always seeing more insights in scripture and, and to just share it. And that we as a church, uh, I love this, there's a verse in Isaiah that talks about that the, the nations will see the people of God and will see the radiance on the faces of the sons and daughters. And that is what will draw them in. And it says that there will be a returning of the sound of, of joy in the, in, the, in the brides and the grooms. And I just think there's so much pain, in, can be so much pain in relationships. But the Lord's desire is to bring a restoration uh, into, into those very intimate relationships. That we would have radiance on our faces. That... When a bride walks down the aisle, she would feel free and joyful and that that would be the case every time, you know, and if, yeah, that there'd be a restoration back to that place. So, so in that way, the two visions are very linked, the church and the union. We call it the union because we wanted it to, we want to talk about how people are made to be body, soul, spirit brought into a place of wholeness and that in relationships, they walk in a place of unity, and that also that our connection with the Lord is un- like we're unified with him as well. And then it is also, it's a union of, of voices who say, I used to be this. This was my story, but now I am this. This is what the Lord has done. And it's a union of voices. It's not just about my voice. It's not just about Brian's voice. It's about your voice, your story. There is, a, there is perhaps a young man or a young woman who needs to know what the Lord has done in you. And so it's a union of voices. So, so today uh, and the next week, we're going to be preaching this, this similar message over in Abbotsford, and, and Pastor Mitch will be here. And so we're honored to do that. Um, and so we're, today we're talking about um, getting over the walls within ourselves so that we can reach people on the other side. And today, the word, the, what we're calling it is this, this word stigma. Because some people f- feel like they have a stigma, like they feel stigmatized. They have a stigma around them. And uh, so I'm going to talk about that today and just dive into what scriptures say and how we can overcome our own past for the sake of helping others overcome their past. Does that sound good? I, you know, I know that there's a lot of seats here. There's a lot of open seats. But I just want you to think, even as I speak this, is that the Lord has you here for a reason. And these seats won't stay empty. But they're going to be filled with the very people who are going to need you to know this message so that you'll have something to give them when they arrive. So you're here for a reason. And I'm not intimidated by the empty seats. I'm grateful that you are here. 
So we're breaking through for your sake, but also for the sake of those you love. <laughs> it's a funny thing, talking about sex. I don't blush as much now as I used to when I would try to teach about it. Still a little bit awkward, uh, but my husband and I, we have... <laughs> You think I'm going to say we have sex, but that's not what I was going to say. My husband and I, we have to talk to our kids about sex because the world's going to, the culture is for sure going to talk to them. And so we were like, we want to, as they get older, we're like, we got to beat the culture to the punch. We want to be the first, like we want to give them their bearings on this topic. So a couple years ago, our twins were the oldest. We took them out at their birthday dinner. They didn't know we were going to just drop this bomb on them of information. It's like, it can be awkward, hey, you know, <laughs> telling your kids. So my one son, he goes, he puts his hands up to kind of guard from the waitress after we give him the information. By a lot, you know, biology, this is good. If we lived on a farm, they'd know already, you know. We all have to talk about it now because we're city folk. Anyway, so, we had, so he puts his hands up and he goes, do I have sperm? <laughs> and we were like, okay, okay, okay. So then we're, you know, so it's all these questions that come to mind. And then the, our other son, he gives us these eyes between Brian and I, and he's like, like, you mean, <laughs> just to clarify. Anyway, so we know that this can be an awkward topic, and we're talking about it in church. Um, but so just imagine that I'm just, like a, I'm just like a mom and we're just talking about this stuff. If you could all fit into the kitchen, if you could all fit into my living room, we'd do it that way too. Um, but we need to talk about it. And here's something fascinating is that the Lord is willing to talk about it. He does not shy away from this topic. In scripture, he gives us lots of, um, he gives us lots of stories that descri like de describe what happens when things go right and when things go wrong. There's lots of examples of that. And then there was also a lot of instruction given around this topic because he knew it would be a big deal, even to the point that in the New Testament, I did, I, earlier this year, I was look, thinking about this thing. I went through, and the only two portions of Scripture that do not, I'm sorry, not portions, like books of the Bible in the entire New Testament with the early church and with Jesus' teachings, the only two books that don't mention it are Philemon and 1 Thessalonians. And if you know your Bible, you know that those are teeny tiny little letters that were written for specific purposes to specific churches. Every other letter, which was essentially like a sermon, included content around sexuality because, because the early church leaders at that time, they knew that this hits home for people. That what happens with our sexual identity and what happens in our relationships and what happens when we are battling temptation or lust or, we're, or we have things that have happened in our past, that, that stuff, it, it interferes with our, it can interfere with our relationship with God and with one another. And so we talk about these things. And so we're talking about this stigma. And I, I mean, I think it's so great. And I even, you know, we submitted this idea to Pastor Mitch, like, can we, we need to talk about this and he's like, absolutely we do. And I love that because too often the church has been silent. And we let everybody else have an opinion, but we don't know how to have an opinion. So we're going to talk about it. So here's what's actually fascinating is that the word stigma, you can Google it. The definition of it, I have it written down here. It means a mark of disgrace, a stain or a reproach. 
makes me think of the, um, I think it's Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The Scarlet Letter. I don't know if anyone knows about that. I read that. I remember reading that in high school and just being like the pain, there's so much pain in that woman's heart because she had committed adultery with a man and, and she was, and then she had a child and she had to wear the scarlet letter so that the whole community would know that she, I mean, the man didn't have to wear it, but she had to wear it. And it was this mark of disgrace on her. And I want to say, I think that within the church and within the culture and within our own conscience, there's things that sometimes have been done to us or things that we have done that make you feel like you have a giant red letter on you. You feel like you have this mark of disgrace on you. Sometimes it's, it's people don't even know what happened. But you just have a feeling that everybody knows. So you avoid eye contact. You avoid places of community. Because you're, you're afraid of what people would think if they knew the truth. Or some people, you think, every, my past, everyone does know my past. And everyone's judging me all the time. And you walk around with that kind of feeling of a stigma on you. We know that sexual choices do have deep ramifications and complications. I'm just going to read a scripture to you. Everyone doing okay? I know this is, this is like a big topic, and I know it can feel heavy. I hope that you can, uh, we're going to go somewhere really beautiful if you follow me along for the, for the journey here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now Corinth, here's even just for your, your knowledge. Corinth, to whom the book of Corinthians was written. So there's this church planted there, and Corinth was like, a sexually immoral hub. It was like a Las Vegas, kind of like what stays, what happens in Corinth, well, whatever, spread it around. Like that was the, that was the culture of, of the Roman Empire at the time, and Corinth was a hub where there was, um, it was like an organized expectation for, um, for what, what the church would call sexual immorality, but it was just their normal. So into that culture, Paul is writing this letter reminding the Christians of, of this truth. These new Christians who probably, a lot of them weren't Jews, didn't have a background in knowing God's heart for these things. So in verse, um, we'll start in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 to 20. It says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man or woman commits is outside the body, but the immoral man or woman sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? So at that time, they would have temples to false gods, and those gods would be worshipped with, with sexual immorality. That was how they, it was like this demand of worship through going and picking a temple prostitute, and that's how you would worship. So here, here he's saying, do you not know you are the temple? And what you do with your body is worship to the Lord, but, but God's not asking to be worshipped. He doesn't want to be worshipped that way. The temple of the Holy Spirit, who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you're not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So here's the first question, because we got to think about what do we do with people who don't, we have to start asking, like, what does this mean for us as Christians living in a world that doesn't think like us? First, we need to know that that's exactly what the Bible was written about. 
at, or at a time when they were asking that same question. It helps us feel not so alone. So the first question, is there really such a thing as sexual immorality or is it just one person's opinion against another? As followers of Christ, what does he ask of us? Followers of Christ. So I don't know. I've stopped asking people, like, when did you become a Christian? Because the word Christian can almost feel watered down. Now I just say, how long have you been following Christ? Because Christians, if you really are a Christian, the goal is that you are following Christ. That you are a disciple of him and that you follow his instructions. So the Bible, Jesus' teaching, and the early church's stance is loud and clear that there is such a, that in God's opinion, there is such a thing as sexual immorality. I just wrote here, our culture today is not advancing past an archaic, old-fashioned system. The choices people are making today are just echoes of the choices people have made throughout recorded history. So this is not advancement, but rather it is a cyclical behavior. So whenever you feel like, oh, the church is just so old and traditional, and now this modern, this post-Christian age, now we're becoming advanced, we're evolving past these old traditions. We're not moving any closer to anything. This is, it's happened actually over, if you study world history, it goes in cycles where people start to just throw off restraint and they say, I'm gonna do whatever I want with my sexuality. You can't stop me. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's not a new phrase. And then what starts to happen is there starts to be an increased sexualized saturation in the culture, and with it also a devaluing of human, human's value, the objectification. And when those two things happen, then actually the pill, like the society starts to crumble. Because society is just made up of men and women. And if men and women can't live their life in wholeness, then the society can't hold up. So what happens throughout history is a nation throws off restraint. God, you can't tell us what to do. We're going to do whatever we want with our sexuality. Within not very long, that society will crumble. And then revival comes. And then people cling to God again. And they say, God, we'll follow you. We'll obey your commands. Then society, then that empire or that Society is strong for a while, and then if they throw off the restraint again, then it crumbles again. So whenever you feel like, oh, we're just so old, like, we just don't, we're not, get with the times, like that kind of feeling, what's such a big deal? Look throughout history, and you'll find out what the big deal is. These things have always led to a nation's weakening, and God knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows what we need better than we do, and so he does put boundaries around our sexual expressions. It, back in the old days, the old days, I mean like thousands of years ago, thousands of years ago, when the church was just being formed, you know that Christians were actually accused of being pagans. That's what old historians called Christians because they would only worship one God. And they thought, how strange that they wouldn't worship him with sexuality. One guy um, says, Diognetius was his name. Uh, he wasn't a Christian. He was a historian at the time. And he writes, those Christians, like, they're so strange. They share their table with all and their bed with no one. 
think, whoa, what if that was our reputation? They're so hospitable and kind and welcoming, and yet they have this strange self-restraint over their sexuality. I don't feel sexual tension when I'm with them. They treat me like a family member, like a brother or a sister or a mother or a father. And they're kind and loving and pure. Holy. So then the second question, so, we, so I believe, yes, there is a standard. According to scripture, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, these are the things he asks of us. The second question, should we expect those who are not following Christ to live as though they do? This question, I mean, that question, wow, that goes, every, that goes all over the place. I have a friend who um, I was talking with my kids about this because they were talking about how sometimes their friends will swear. And so then I said, what do you think? What, what do we do about that? Does it make you swear? They're like, no. You sure? Yeah? Doesn't make you swear? <laughs> Does it feel, make you feel tempted to swear? They're like, yeah, maybe a little bit. Like I, I think of the words in my head or, you know. And then I said, yeah, I have a friend actually who swears almost every time I talk with her. But she, she's, not, like, she's not following Jesus. Like, that's not her claim. So do you think I should focus more on getting her to stop swearing or just loving her and showing her Jesus? And they were like, oh, yeah, that would make more sense. <laughs> so it's a concept that, so do we expect people who don't follow Jesus to live as though they do? God has given us a free will. We are free to choose what we want to do, but then we are not free from the consequences of what we choose. So I want to make a note about um, the area around homosexuality. And I am, actually, I am actually excited because the narrative has changed. About 10 years ago, 8 years ago, I hope you guys aren't feeling uncomfortable. I would tell you, I would talk about this with you, any one of you individually, so I'll talk openly with you all publicly. Um, the narrative was that there is no choice. I am born this way. Do you remember that? Born, born gay, born this way. And there was all these reported studies. Scientists wonder if they found the gene. Do you remember that? If you, I don't know if you read them. I read a lot of them, a lot of those articles and studies and debates, and I would search for evidence because I wanted to make sure that I understood the issue. There was never any proof. Do you, do you know that that narrative has silenced? It's not like that. They don't say that anymore. Now they say, we are allowed to choose whatever we want, and it can change from day to day. Do you see how it's changed? Now, do you know that that is a lot closer to science and it's closer to even what the Bible talks about free will? So we're getting closer, actually, to people feeling free and not trapped because there was this narrative. The reason that they brought in that there was a, the narrative of I'm born this way is because if it's an inerrant trait, then you should never be penalized for it, right? So they brought it in so that it be, could become legal so that there would no longer be, um, we wouldn't be allowed to be opposed to it anymore. As soon as it was legalized and, and kind of like climate, we all acclimatized to this sense of, yes, they should deserve, and then the narrative changed, and now it is, 
I am free to decide. I want to do. It's fluid. So we're actually closer to what Scripture says about God saying, you, yes, there's free will involved here. So this is really hopeful because now people don't have to feel trapped. So now, third question, how should we treat people who believe differently about their sexuality than we do? In some study that I've done in the developmental processes, maturing processes of the mind within children and within adults, there's this process that is um, called the integrative process that little ones do not have the ability to do. And it's this thought of being able to hold two things at once, two emotions at once, two thoughts at once. So a child has no ability to have their own opinion and also have empathy for your opinion. (laughs) They also have no ability to feel both anger or frustration with you and also remember their love for you. That's what causes temper tantrums. Whereas as we mature, we have this ability to hold on to two things. And, and, you know, speaking straight, if Brian and I ever get into a fight, ever, you know, rarely, ever, if we ever get into a fight, it's like, that frustrates me and I love you. And it's what slows me down to make a decision. So that integrative process is a very, it's a mature thing to be able to do. But it also is the same process in the mental muscle that helps us be able to hold on to our own convictions without sacrificing relationship. It helps us to be true to a relationship without sacrificing our own convictions. It it leads to a civilized society and is the only way to have true diversity. Because if I, in order to have relationship with you, have to be exactly like you, I am no longer me. And if I force that on other people, I'm, it, it's just, it, it's too constraining. It's, there's no freedom. So how do we treat people who think differently about their sexuality than we do? We figure out, we gain the maturity to hold to our own conviction while still maintaining a relationship. And I am specifically talking here, I know it can be more, I think it's more hard for me, more difficult when it's someone who would claim to be a disciple of Christ while refusing his instructions. That feels more difficult. When somebody who says, nope, God, nope, I don't want to follow God, it's actually easier for me to go, okay, well then, I'm not going to try to control you. I'm not going to try to force anything on you. Does that make sense? I know it's, it's thick in here. You guys doing okay? Okay, all right. So the other thing is that we never can allow ourselves to believe that someone else's identity is entirely locked up in their sexual choices. That is what the enemy does to people, is he says, you are your sexual behavior. You are what, who you are attracted to. That's your entire identity. Do not fall for that trick. These people that are walking among us are sons and daughters primarily. We can't fall for that lie. And that's going to tear down that wall, isn't it? There's this, I mean, it's, I, I watched the news article of this man, I, I think it was this year, wearing a shirt that just said, free dad hugs. And he walked around a, a, a pride parade, at a pride parade, giving out hundreds 
of hugs. I don't know if he was representing the kingdom of God or not, but I could imagine that Jesus gives out free dad hugs to sons and daughters. He says, I see you beyond your sexual choices. I see you as a little girl or a little boy. I see what happened that made you afraid of men. I see what happened that made you despise masculinity. I see what happened that made you fear women. I see you. So do we see people? Fourth question. Are certain sexual sins beyond the redeeming, healing power of Christ? Any of it? Is any of it? No. I'm going to read to you again in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 11. This is one of my favorite verses. The whole Bible. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, so that's anyone who would have sex um, outside of marriage covenant before marriage, nor idolaters. Now remember what idolatry all entailed at that time. It wasn't just about having a little Buddha statue in the front of your restaurant, though that matters, like that's significant too. Nor adulterers, so that's those who would break marriage covenant um, and commit adultery. Nor the effeminate. That word in the, in the original language has to do with, um, more, it more had to do with males who would kind of despise their masculinity and kind of like a cross-dresser, basically. I'd have that sense. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. That seems so heavy because then I go, oh no, Who's, who can inherit the kingdom of God? But the next verse is so beautiful. It says, such were some of you, you there in the Corinthian church, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Such were some of you. I don't know all of your stories, but do you know what I love coming to church and being in a community of believers? I love worshiping. I love receiving the word, but I love being amidst people and I know their story. And I think, look at how beautiful they are. Look at, how st- look at that man taking care of his children. I remember, I remember his story. And it's this sense, it's like we are the reminders amongst each other. Say, God loves people, and he loves to restore people. He loves it. When I see your faces, I see your story. What the Lord has done and is doing, he doesn't quit on us. And then the fifth question, when people come and fill these seats, When they surrender to following after Christ, how will they be treated amongst us? In the Old Testament, we see this story of a woman named Rahab. 
you're familiar with it, she was, she was a, a Gentile. So there was the Israelites and then all the other nations would be, they would refer to them as Gentiles. She was a Gentile and she lived her life as a prostitute. Um, but according to the culture, it probably would be more, um, be more easy or more accurately described as more like a, a porn star because of the respect that she would have had in the city. Um, because of their values and stuff like that. But she feared the Lord. She took a risk. And when the Israelite army was coming, she actually helped the spies and said, but will you rescue me? And can I come and be near your people, with your people? Rescue me out of this, out of this life, out of this city. And the Bible talks about, in the book of Joshua, it talks about how she, at first she was on the outside of, this, out of the camp, then she was in the midst of the camp, and then scripture says that eventually she ended up marrying a man, and she's actually in the genealogy of Christ. Her legacy changed. So how does God treat people? He brings them right in. He says, there's a space for you, Rahab. You sold, you, you sold part of yourself? There's a spot for you. Hmm. Mary Magdalene in the New Testament. Sometimes, girl, sometimes girls have a really hard time feeling clean again after they've felt dirty. God gives lots of stories of women that he says, you can come real close. You're not, you don't have to sit in the back row. Mary Magdalene says that she was a prostitute. She had a stigma on her. And it says Jesus restored her. She was even, she was tormented by demonic forces. And Jesus put a stop to that and called her in. And she had a place among the disciples. He brings her right in. And I'm gonna, here's this, maybe, could be obscure, portion of scripture in Isaiah, Isaiah 56, and I have it in the message, because I want to make note, even to go so far as, what about, what about people who've had sex changes? What if they've gone that far, Lord? What do we do then? Isaiah 56, verse 3 to 8, it says, make sure no outsider who now follows God ever has the occasion to say, God put me in second class, I don't really belong. Make sure that no physically mutilated person is ever made to think, I'm damaged goods, I don't, ever, I don't really belong. For God says, to the mutilated. Now in the, in the um, original text, the word there would be a eunuch, and a eunuch was a man, was a man who had had a sex change, essentially, had been castrated for purposes of worship or for purposes of his work. Um, so the word is to the eunuch. So even that, even that, who keep my Sabbath, who enter into my rest, who choose what's to, who cho and choose what delights me and keep a firm grip on my covenant, I'll provide them an honored place in my family and within my city, even more honored than that of sons and daughters. I'll confer permanent honors on them that will never be revoked. Let me just pause there. In, so in the message, it says, who are even honored even more than sons and daughters. In the original language, it says, and I will give them 
So to the one who has been cut off, I will give them a name that will never be cut off. I will give them a name better than even of sons and daughters. He pulls them right in. There's a place for them. And as for the outsiders who now follow me, working for me, loving my name, wanting to be my servants, all who keep my Sabbath and don't defile it, holding fast to my covenant, I'll bring them to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. That's the verse Jesus quotes later where he says, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He's quoting this portion of scripture. They'll be welcome to worship the same as the insiders, people who've done it right, who know the rules and didn't go do that stuff. It'll be the same to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices. Yes, my house of worship will be known as a house of prayer for all people. The decree of the master, God himself, who gathers in the exiles of Israel, I will gather others also. I'll gather them in with those already gathered. How beautiful is this? There is a second definition of stigma. You can look this up. Google it. Just put it right in your search bar. The first one is a mark of disgrace. It blew my mind. The second definition of stigma by Orthodox Christian tradition are the marks on Jesus' body left from the crucifixion. Isaiah 53, verse 5 to 6. It says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. By his marks, our marks are gone. By his stigma, our stigma is gone. Jesus, when he was speaking to his disciples at that first communion, it was the last supper before his crucifixion, he holds the bread and he breaks it and he says, this is my body, it's broken for you. We're gonna do communion here in a couple minutes. And it's my prayer that if any of you have any remainder of a sense of a scarlet letter on your identity, that when you come and take communion, you will exchange your stigma for his. Do you know that after he, Jesus died and was raised back to life, he went, and it says he went up to heaven, and it says that he had a glorified body, like a heavenly body, kind of what we're going to get when we die, we go to heaven, we're going to have a kind of an unbreakable body, and then it's, but it says that he kept his marks because he how beautiful it's going to be when we meet him and we get to see his hands and we go you took my mark for me he's like I'll keep them I'll keep the mark for all eternity it doesn't hurt anymore it's just a scar it's just a hole but I don't ever want you to think that you have to pay for your for your sin again. I paid for it so the stigma could be taken off of you. Imagine a whole church. Imagine a global church of people who really believe that. 
people who said, I am not my sexual past. I am a son or I am a daughter and I have an inheritance in the marks that he took, his back whipped. A whip with, it, said, it says that there was, it was either be the whips that the Romans would use to crucify people. They would attach either nails or broken clay onto, onto the whip, ends of the whip so that when they whipped, it would grip into the skin and rip, grip and rip. These marks on him. I've seen it happen. It's one of my favorite things. I can feel when the healing presence of God is in a room. It happened just a couple weeks ago. We were with a group of young women who've gone through a lot. And it was just, just a small group of them. And it was a Tuesday morning. Brian and I got to go and speak to them. But literally, I walked in the room and I could feel the healing presence of God because these women were try are trying to do that trade. The stigma that's been on them because of prostitution or drugs or, or alcohol or abuse. And they're saying, God, I'm going to trust you with my past. And I could feel his presence there. Not because we came, but that's where God likes to hang out. The Holy Spirit likes to hang out in rooms where people say, I'm trading God, my past for a new future. We've had some really beautiful experiences in this last year and over the years as we've preached messages like this. Um, earlier this year, I got to pray with a woman. I think she was in her 60s. She talked to me about um, that when she was 15 years old, she was raped. And she was saying that she's oh, she's been in the church and she's been trying but she just feels like it just lingers on her I could see it she looked troubled you know she's like she couldn't keep her hair you know and it's like she couldn't keep the hair out of her face she couldn't keep eye contact and a friend and I we prayed for her and you could actually I it was like I could see the torment stopping but it first intensified and it was a little bit overwhelming <laughs> And, she, and she's like, I feel like I might be sick. And so we're trying to help her. And okay, well, once you got it, okay, we're going to see this through now. We got to keep praying. And she put her head down. She was sitting on the, on the edge of the stage. And then she just went, oh, okay, there we go. I can, I can breathe. And I was like, she took a deep breath. And I... Um, I thought, okay, I know she said that this has been a last couple years have been really hard. So I said, how long has it been since you felt like you could breathe? She said, well, since it happened when I was 15. I just think this is, this is our God. He loves to restore. She was so giddy after that. It was actually quite humorous. He loves to change I mean, what, the, what the enemy meant for evil. He turns and brings restoration. And now that story, I will never forget it. And I'll tell more people. There's this other person that I got to pray for a couple years ago. Had a porn addiction. 
and they were, you know, they battle with it, right? You do good for a little while and then you slip back and you're like, oh, I hate that about, you know, I hate it. So she, she came and asked for prayer and I prayed for her, you know, and then it was months later, she came back to me and she said, do you know it's ever since then, it's like when I try to think of the images or the memories that I've seen, it's like I can't access those files. Because that's what I, I thought, well, God, if you can heal bodies, you could heal minds, you could rewire stuff. You like to do that. And I wonder if there's some people in here who would like to do some trading with the Lord. My stigma, I'll, I'll accept yours, Jesus. You cover me. I want to read this prophetic word um, someone sent to us about our, our mission campus. I just got it this week, and I thought, this is really good timing. I'm going to read this. This man said, as I was praying and waiting on the Lord during worship, he gave me a vision of this campus. I looked to the entrance doors and saw a flood of people walk in, but they were coming in with their arms crossed, their heads down, and walking backwards. They were focused on the shame, the pain, the condemnation of their past. And while they continued to live, they couldn't look forward to life. And as they came into the theater, they walked to the front and I saw the team turn these people around, away from their past, lift their heads to see, to look for what they could look forward to and open their arms and lift them in worship and vulnerability and submission to God. By the grace of the Father and the leading of the Holy Spirit, you, Mission Campus, will begin to turn around the people of mission to walk away from their past and walk towards a life full of Christ. Thanks for listening. We would love to hear how you have been impacted by this message. You can contact us at info at hillcity.ca or simply find us on Facebook and Instagram.